This episode of the Blackstick Global Podcast is sponsored by Blackstick Global Passport. Join aspiring Black expats, expats, and repats, where you can build community, get resources, and gain support along your journey abroad. You're invited to join Blackstick Global Passport. Inside Passport, you'll find exclusive workshops on everything from expat taxes, financial planning, insurance, job boards, accountability check-ins, and more more. You can even take Passport on the go with our app available for iOS and Android devices. Just click the link in the episode you're listening to or visit blacksitglobal.com and click on Passport. See you inside. This is awesome. There's a whole nother side of the world where things are going on and it's it's different than what we do, but also similar at the same time. Close your eyes and imagine living a life you love, unapologetic and unbothered free from daily microaggressions from Karens and Kens, free from the fear of police brutality and systemic racism. Wouldn't that feel amazing? Now open your eyes. What if I told you that it's possible? Hear inspiring stories and get the actual blueprints from brothers and sisters of the diaspora who are living out their wildest dreams abroad. You've heard the term, now be inspired by the movement. I'm Krishan Wright, and this is Blacksit Global. Welcome to the Blacksit Global podcast. I am super excited for today's conversation because I get the opportunity to speak with someone who I've been following for quite some time, Carl. He is the founder of the Black Expat Podcast Network and the host of the Black Expat Podcast. If you haven't been listening, I'm just telling you now, listen, add it to your playlist. You're welcome. And I am so delighted to have him on the podcast. He has traveled to over 50 countries and has spent a decade abroad. And he is joining today to tell us about his fabulous travels. And yeah, welcome to the podcast, Carl. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really, really excited and thankful to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So you have a very, very interesting story. And I think of all the people that I've spoken to thus far, you have been abroad the longest. So before we dive into your journey and the time you have spent, and I should have mentioned that you live on the island of Taiwan, that you are originally from Chicago. Thank you. You know what? Actually, it's interesting that you say like I'm the well one of the longest people that you've interviewed living abroad because it's weird how this kind of transition to being new abroad to I've been here a little bit. So man, I've been here a long time, uh, and I think I just realized, man, it has been it, it is a long time. Like many people don't spend that amount of time abroad, even in the military. Like you kind of bounce around, but you know you always find joy back home. But no, I'm growing up in Chicago. I'm the only boy of five kids. I'm also the middle child. <laughs> that that grounds me in a lot of ways. Uh, again, I'm very close with my family. I'm the, yeah, I'm very close with my family. Uh, so I had a very interesting upbringing. A uh, single mom raises all. Amazing woman. Uh, I owe a lot to my mom because she was the one that always pushed me to step outside of my comfort zone. Um, I initially was supposed to be a brain surgeon. So I was going to school and I was in all the, I love science and all the science classes. And one day when I came home from school and I was just talking about the courses I had taken, my mother just looked me in the face and she said, why do you want to be a brain surgeon? 
I was like, well, mom, because, you know, my mother had brain surgery when I was younger. And I wanted to, you know, I saw what she went through. And I just wanted to be able to help people the same way that the doctors helped her. Um, and I was going to school for her and for that reason, because I also love science, too. But she looked me in the eye and she was like, Carl, do something that that fits your personality. She's like, I know you could be anything you want to be, but it, you want to be a brain surgeon, but that's not where your passion lies. He's like, just try everything. And I kind of took that advice a little too far uh, now looking back on it in her opinion, uh, you know, because I ended up moving out of the country for a decade, which is, I know is something that she may not have envisioned me doing, but has supported me every step of the way. So I've always come from a very supportive family, I think. And that was a big part of my upbringing. And I've had the same friends uh, that are family friends since I was five years old. So my best friend, I've known him since I was five. And my friends from high school are still the same people that are around me and around my family. So I was grounded at home, which allowed me to go out comfortably and live and explore the world. Your mom sounds like a remarkable woman to give you, you know, even though you weren't asking for it in that moment, like permission, but she like encouraged you to pursue your passion, to pursue your dreams. And that to me is so liberating because as you probably have encountered in the conversations that you've had with people, that's not always the case. They're conflicted and they don't always have that level of, um, while they might be wanting to embrace Wanderlust, their family is like kind of pulling them back and they feel conflicted. So for you to have that reaction from your mom and her embracing your zest for life, I love that so much. That is awesome. So in doing my research about you, Carl, because like I said, I was like very excited for today's conversation. You talked about on your show about a pivotal moment that you had when you were a freshman in college. And according to you, quote, it shifted the direction of my life. Can you talk about what happened freshman year? Yes, you know, in your freshman year of college, when you submit, your, you don't get to choose what classes you have. It depends on the school you go to. But I went to a liberal arts school and you kind of fill out a survey back in the day. It came in the mail. Like, what courses are you interested in? And I clicked off everything like Spanish because my girlfriend was Puerto Rican. I clicked off science because I love science. I was like, oh, social studies. Yeah, it sounds cool. I did not click off math. I'm not a math guy. Never will be. Um, I'm good with numbers, but I don't like math class. Let me take that back. But anyway, so, you know, the first week of school, when you get your schedules in the mail, um, I came in and I saw the classes that I had and it was like, you know, science, cool. Social studies, amazing. A writing class, I, I like writing. And then it said Chinese. And I was just like, Chinese, Mandarin Chinese. I was just so, I was so confused. I was outraged. I was like, what about them thought that my black self from Chicago would want to take a Mandarin Chinese class my first semester of my you know college life? And, you know, and I, for me, I guess my perspective then was, I'm going to fail this class. I want to get good grades. Why would you put me into this class? And I had zero interest at all in joining and, and learning the language or learning anything about Chinese at that time. But interestingly enough, um, I actually went to the president. I went to my mentor, several teachers, everyone. I was like, hey, can you guys take me out of this? Like, I don't want to be in this. And a lot of them were like, oh, you should try something new, you know, be different. I was like, that's cool. But this is too different. I felt like it was too much. But I ended up having to do it because I couldn't change it because I was a freshman. You don't get a lot of options in changing what you, know, what you do, which, again, is fine. But long story short, the first day in the class, I, I loved it. It was, it was new. It was different. And I loved how new and how different it was. It was unlike any course I'd ever taken in my life up to that point. 
um, you know, in college and in high school and things like that. And I had fun and I learned a lot and I got my name that I still use today, my Chinese name. So, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was crazy, though, at how angry I was and <laughs> how I was irate. And I was really anxious and upset about my first week of college because I had that course on my schedule. Wow. So I commend you for sticking with it because you had not up until that point had ever been exposed to Mandarin Chinese? Like, had you studied it in high school? Because to me, I would imagine coming into a college-level course without any familiarity would be quite intimidating. Yeah, I had this, and I, that was my thing. I was like, well, you know, I studied Spanish in high school. Uh, even French is closer, but I had no background whatsoever. So I was literally very confused mm. as to why... Because that, that cannot be a random, like, that could not have been random. Like, why would you randomly put someone in a Mandarin Chinese course? That just seems like a course you should have to sign up for. That, exactly. That, that was my thinking back then. It's like, no. <laughs> so I, my only exposure has been Duolingo. But knowing that, well, it's a character-based language. What do you, how did you, like, embrace memorizing the characters and I would imagine in that as well is the context. Yeah. Cause it was, well, honestly, like I, I do love school. And once I actually like started liking the class, I was like, okay, I'll actually study and do this. It was difficult at first. I was a much better, and this kind of makes sense now to me a lot more. I'm a much better speaker than a reader and a writer. So, I mean, I was, I made sure I was above and beyond on the speaking part, like the exam and stuff like that to get those extra points. But when it came to like writing and reading, that wasn't really what I enjoyed doing. Uh, it just takes a lot of repetition. In the same way that when I went to Taiwan and saw how the students learn, it's just repetition, writing things over and over again, reusing things, um, learning sentence patterns uh, and how they communicate. Uh, the grammar is the complete opposite of how we speak in English. So it's harder to kind of like the way in which they structure sentences is very interesting. So you had to actually study that. Um, I actually got better at reading and writing when I studied abroad. And I started texting, uh, you know, back then. <laughs> oh, wow. Because I was like, oh, man, because it was so much easier to text. But that's when my reading and writing got better because I had to communicate. I was forced to communicate. And wow. I was forced to write, but through texting, but not like how we text now, like T9 yeah. texting in Chinese. So it was like, that's when I got better at it. And I was like, man, I should have been doing this for the whole time. <laughs> well, there you have it. There's the hack. <laughs> So you had that wonderful class and you were able to start learning Mandarin Chinese. I know you majored, if I'm not mistaken, in anthropology. Mm -hmm. And so from there, you went abroad at some point during your college endeavors. Was that what really like awakened you to a possibility of having a life abroad? When I, Because my first trip out of country was to Egypt. And it was a place that always ties back to my mom, that my mom always wanted to go to. But I kind of signed up because I was studying anthropology and sociology. And my professors were like, yeah, we're going to Egypt. And my best friend was like, Egypt's amazing. I was like, yeah, I know. I, I see pictures of it. I could kind of relate because the cartoons I used to watch back in the day. Mummy's Alive. I don't know if you guys old enough to know about that. But um, that's what I used to watch. And it had like Egyptian stuff on it. Oh, uh, my gosh. I know it's not, it sounds so, but it just really was a connection for me. And I was like, oh, yeah, I definitely want to go to Egypt. But that made me feel more comfortable with going abroad. Um, but even in Egypt, I had no idea that I would actually, because I hadn't studied abroad until that point in time. I didn't study abroad until my senior year. 
um, in my junior years when I went to Egypt. And I was like, man, this is this is awesome. There's a whole nother side of the world where things are going on. And it's it's different than what we do, but also similar at the same time. Um, but it definitely opened my eyes to the possibility of leaving the country to see different things, not necessarily live at that time. So you, if I'm not mistaken, you took the path that I see a lot of people explore. And when they're thinking about moving abroad, I also explored it myself initially is teaching abroad. So I know you spent quite a lot of time teaching. Can you talk about that experience? Because, you know, especially going from starting in freshman year of college, not having any exposure to Mandarin, Chinese, and then ultimately going abroad, being a teacher. And I know, you know, it evolved from there. Um, talk a little bit about that for the people that are curious, what that experience is like. I loved teaching. I didn't I didn't love it when I first went to Taiwan. The, the reason why I went is because when I came back from study abroad, I had to get a job. My professor, she was Taiwanese. She was like, hey, you want to go and keep learning the language and teach? I was like, sure. And she showed me a PowerPoint slide that was like five, five pictures of palm trees in like a building. No kids, no curriculum. That's it. And she was like, yeah, uh, you have the job. You don't have to interview. Uh, you know me. So just go over there and start. So and that's literally how it happened. Wow. <laughs> what a teacher. My gosh. And I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Um, and then I ended up going. Uh, and the first, I didn't realize because I was teaching high school students and I was 21 years old at the time. Uh, so I had high school and a little bit of junior high school kids. I realized quickly that I didn't like the little one. Well, I didn't enjoy teaching the little ones. They're annoying. I'll be honest with you guys. I don't like. I don't enjoy teaching little kids, um, but the high schoolers, like we had a connection because we were like, we were closer, similar in age. And I knew that what I was doing and my, my knowledge and my skill set was, would be beneficial to them, not just in the classroom, but beyond. Uh, so that I think is what kind of drew me to wanting to remain in teaching because I actually could see the impact that I had faster. Right. And what I was what we were able to talk about and things I was able to focus on inside of the classroom. So I taught, you know, writing and grammar and social studies and listening and speaking. But the way I structured my classroom was very interactive. It was very similar to a collegiate level class and the setup, not necessarily because I'm not a professor, obviously, but the setup was similar to that. And it was all about dialogue and conversation. So it was a very rewarding experience for me. And it was half of the reason why I continued to stay in Taiwan was because I actually liked teaching so much so that I fell in love with it after two years. And then I stayed in it for so long because I was really passionate about it and the work that I was doing. So I know it's largely dependent on the situation that you're placed into. Um, and if you are at a good institution to work at, uh, that's very supportive and encourages you to think outside the box and you know be go beyond the book in some ways. But um, overall... Uh, most times in teaching, if you have a passion for people and a passion for learning and for helping people, you know, uh, to achieve or to reach a goal that they're trying to reach, and you'll have an enjoyable experience teaching abroad because even if the administration is bad, if you enjoy the students, um, then you'll have a good experience. My experience was good because of the students, not because of the administration. Uh, definitely because of the students I was fortunate enough to teach. That's excellent. You had the right perspective. And I know with some of the programs that I've, I've uh, explored and researched, you know, it, depending on where you go in the world, it can be quite lucrative um, in terms of being able to have a lot of your essentials covered and things like that. So definitely for anyone who's listening, hopefully this will encourage you to explore it further. So you didn't stop there. You didn't stop at teaching. You became an entrepreneur. 
<laughs> so you I, and I was like, what? Open, right? The You co-own the first and only 100% Black-owned bar in the island of Taiwan, Arts and Crafts. How amazing is that? And I want to know, like, were you nervous? How did you, what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, that was, again, it's definitely highlight of my time there. It was kind of a culmination of everything that I had, myself, my business partner at the time, um, had been working toward, right? Because at that time, I'd been in Taiwan for eight years. And I had done teaching, I had done directing, um, traveling. Uh, and, you know, and it's like, you know, after being for away from home for eight years, like, if teaching isn't what's keeping me there, if it's not like still my passion, because, you know, passions do change over time and being open to that really will help, well, has helped me find different avenues and ways to continue to express myself and just honestly just be happy. Um, but it was just a combination of everything that we enjoyed. Like we enjoyed traveling, we enjoyed drinking beer, um, we enjoyed meeting and helping people and having a space for us, for Black people and people of color on the island to kind of come to um, and be a part of was just a dream a dream come true where we were super nervous because there was a lot of things that we just didn't know because we had i hadn't owned i owned a travel company before that but i never owned like a physical lo- like a physical place in america before it was our first time doing it we weren't close to the family or friends or advisors we were super far away and we were doing it all on our own with our own money like no investors and no bank loans or anything like that just us uh, so it was a lot to learn it was a lot to take on and we're doing it where i was the only one that spoke chinese so it's a lot of language you have to go through, like understanding the legal aspects of it, which is easier than anticipated, the legal side of it, but it's still like making sure we understand what we can and can't do. Um, so it was a lot of work and a lot of understanding and translating and back and forth and getting help from the local community, which was great for us and really you know, a big part of why we love Taiwan, because people are so nice there and they're always willing to help. Um, so it was nerve wracking. Um, but once we got it up and running, which we kind of we redecorated all on our own uh, in two weeks. So we bought the building and we had five floors. We started with the first floor, the main area. We got the main area up and running in under two weeks. And we didn't have a car, never owned a car in Taiwan. What? So we were carrying like big pieces of wood on the back of our scooter. Like my business partner was on the back holding it and I would be driving. Um, we were like finding ways to get tools, like just going next to them, like, hey, do you have a drill? Oh, I do have a drill. Thank you. Nice, man. Can we borrow it for a second? Yeah, sure. People be outside doing construction and we'd ask them to come in and help us measure stuff. Like it was a lot of just figuring it out. Um, but it was so exciting because it was new and it wasn't that expensive. The buying the part was, but the little things you need to do weren't as expensive as I know it would be when we were back in America. Like finding a drill, hundreds of dollars in Taiwan, it was free. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of that. But once we got it open, it was amazing because uh, we filled it with Black people. Like that was just a, it was something we never thought we'd be able to do. And though we never really had the chance to see it from the opposite perspective, like we've always wanted to walk into a space, hear our music and see the people working there, not just working, but owning the location, be black, right? So not other people who are using our music to lure us in, but it's our people using our music and our culture and our way of living and thinking and speaking to make us feel comfortable and feel like we are in a place that we can't call a home away from home. So it is a very different feeling. And just being on the opposite side of the bar and just being able to converse and answer questions and be a resource for so many people uh, visiting the island was just was just amazing. 
I bet. I bet for people, Black people especially, that have come to the island and made it their home, you know, at least for either the long run or the short term, it felt amazing. So talk a little bit about, if you can, share any perspective that anyone has shared with you coming to Arts and Crafts, because like you said, just being able to create a safe space for people like us had to be an incredible experience. Yeah, and a lot of people kind of they 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 share the same sentiment as as kind of what I described. But it was all, it's always just different because sometimes they'll be having a bad day at work, or they would just need to like I just need to speak in a way in which I don't have to correct myself or I use the slang I want to use and um, hear the music, make song requests, and actually have my song played and. Uh, see rhythm like that was a big thing um, like uh, so people would actually come in and like say those things and they actually came back for those reasons it was like because we would cook like we had a full kitchen so we would actually cook and make our food and have our sauces available like we had someone from Jamaica come in and make jerk chicken wings and invite people that were you know from the Caribbean islands to come down he would cook for them so it really did grow into a space where it's like all right if you're black and you want to bring your culture if you want to just come and find your culture here like you could come and do that and so we did have those conversations a lot, but it's also a safe space to talk about, you know, some things that were that were bothering us because we were open during like the George Floyd process um, and all that. And we had a business partner co-hosted a rally in Taiwan and we had a debriefing session there at the, you know, at the bar to actually as a safe space for us to just digest everything that was going on and kind of exhale and be around our people and not around people who are going to ask us questions like, oh, how do you feel about this? Or what's going on? Or I don't understand. You're in a place where we understood what was going on. And we were there to brainstorm and be proactive about what can we do to give back and be a part of this movement, uh, which we ultimately did by fundraising and, you know, how holding the, the peace rally that we had in Taiwan as well. So it was definitely a space for people to come together and collaborate about not just, you know, drinking, partying, and having a good time, uh, but to also mobilize agendas that we had and have on the island of Taiwan for our people. And that was something I really enjoyed engaging in as well. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, we all, and the struggle continues, right? The The conversation needs to continue and it's, you know, platforms like this is yours, the space that you created. And I know, you know, arts and crafts, I know you closed the business. Yeah, the pandemic hit us hard. And you know, I know it wasn't no PPPs in Taiwan. So we inevitably had to end up... Um, unfortunately i'm closing down but my my goal is to uh you know refund raise kind of recover from that and i do want to open up another space um mm. down the line just once the pandemic kind of settles because i think i realize now how important a space like that is and was for the community um so i do but i want to do it you know bigger and better i know how to fundraise i know how to i know how to gain like what support is needed to run it now now that i know how to do it mm. the next time i do it, it'll be bigger and hopefully well not better. It'll be bigger and have more resources available for people as well. Absolutely. I have no doubt because everything I have read about you and researched and even in this conversation, I've learned so much. If nothing else, you are highly resourceful. <laughs> I mean, putting like lumber on riding a scooter and all of that other stuff. Oh my goodness. So Let's talk a little bit about the Black community in Taiwan. Is it like disparate where, you know, people are, you know, little place here, a little place there, or are there, you know, other opportunities for people to come together? Like, are there like WeChat and things like that? How do people stay connected or find each other? 
one of the good things about Taiwan is that when you go out, like the expat community is really small. And the reason why we opened the bar was because there aren't that many places for us to go. And like, it sounds weird because you're like on an island and there are a lot of places to go. But like, again, when you want to, like, sometimes you want to go out and have a drink or you want to go out to dance or you want to go, you know, to the beaches and stuff like that. But most foreigners and most expats, they freak, we frequent the same places because you don't want to go out. You want to go out and hear your music, right? You want to go out and feel comfortable and have good quality drinks. And for us, if you don't, if you don't know the language fluently, then you can't find those hidden gems. Or if you don't have local connections and you don't know where those gems are. I was, before I had my own space, I was big on just walking around down side streets and stuff like that and finding places, local places to be in. Because again, you could kind of take over the music because they're like, oh, foreign, foreigners never come here. What are you doing here? Oh, you speak Chinese. Cool. Hey, can I change your music? It's, ta- it's terrible. And they would allow me to do that. But I mean, everyone doesn't, everyone's not that, you know, adventurous, but also everyone doesn't want to go through the struggle of having to do that. You can just go out, go into the city and go to the, you know, the bar area or the club area. If you don't want to do that, you can go to like the hiking sites and you can find people, not black people, you can find expatriates. Uh, but for most black people, we do have a group online uh, called uh, Brothers and Sisters of Taiwan. That's on Facebook that we use. And most people communicate via, we don't have a line group to kind of put information in, but a lot of people get their information from that from that group. But what we do a good job of is that once somebody does come, instead of using online to connect them, we meet up and connect each other. Because that's the fastest way to get questions answered. It's like, hey, I'm here. Cool. Let's meet up. And then I'll connect you with people that I know. I'll let you know where we frequent and which, and if you're seeming to want to get into this type of group, I'll put you in that group. Uh, so we do do a good job. I think holistically in Taiwan, the black community of connecting each other in person, which I think is important. Yeah. That warm touch is so critical. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. So you talked a little bit about when you were talking about arts and crafts, the cost of getting hardware and things like that. What is the cost of living like there is I hear from people that are in um, the, on the continent of Asia that they have, it's more favorable than it is in the States, but that also varies in where you live, right? If you're in Singapore, it's probably not. <laughs> so for you, what has it been like? It does kind of depend because I lived in Taipei. I never lived in the big city. I always lived on the like the outskirts of town, so like in the suburban areas. But e- even with that, um, you make a decent salary and you're able to live comfortably. I guess on average, and this is from my, you know, from hiring and but also my own research and just talking to people, you're able to save about sixty percent of your paycheck, and that and that includes what you pay for housing, what you pay for food, and then uh, entertainment. As long as you're not like hard partying every weekend, right? So like a party or two, but not every weekend you're in the club. If you're in, in the club every weekend, maybe 30 to 40%. But you can save a huge majority of your of your salary just because the things that you pay for are, are cheaper, right? So one US dollar equals uh, 30 Taiwanese dollars. And that takes you, you know, a very, very long way. Um, the average cost for a meal, if you want the cheapest meal, it's $2 a meal. Um, if you want to be fancy, you can go five to six dollars. So um, it's actually very, you know, out here when you're doing one DoorDash, you're paying, 15 to 20 dollars for one so exactly <laughs> i went out to lunch with my friends the other week and next thing you know i had a 50 dollar bill yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was like what <laughs> outside just got expensive <laughs> <laughs> and i've been back and i'm like oh my god like you really can't go anywhere without spending 50 dollars. but in Taiwan, exactly. i'm like i'm spending i'm spending 15 and that's wow. 
and per day like that adds up per day and you know and even if you cook inside like the price of food is even even cheaper and because you know and when you especially when you have to get creative with cooking one of the best things i learned about being abroad is that i was such a creature of habit and what i ate and i didn't want to try new things but once i was forced to cook and i had to figure out what ingredients to use it kind of pushed me to be more adventurous and more open to trying different recipes cooking things in different ways and i kind of found what i do enjoy and it's it's bigger now like what i can choose and what i can cook is larger so and that even makes things cheaper i eat a lot more vegetables in taiwan than i do here in america because vegetables are cheap i can go and get all the things that you need onions garlic all the seasons and all that i would go out and spend 20 dollars and it would last me for like two months so it is very cost effective to live in taiwan it's much cheaper singapore no, it was fourteen dollars for a beer in Singapore. I'll never forget that. Went there, and that was when I was twenty-five, and that's like five years ago. So I could not imagine how much a beer costs in Singapore today. But in Taiwan, no, a beer is like two or three dollars. So, wow! Thank you for <laughs> illustrating that, and I think it's important because you you said you know being able to save anywhere between forty to sixty percent of your money, and that's substantial especially when you think about the average American lives paycheck to paycheck. So everything that comes in, pretty much all of it goes back out and then some, because we know we have a huge credit crisis in America. So what I want people to take away from this is you don't have to ride the struggle bus <laughs> and you don't have to be intimidated about what it would be like living in another country because when you listen to shows like this, when you are in different groups and doing your own research, you can see that there are ways in which, you know, your cost of living is not going to be as high as it is in the States, but your quality of life can improve greatly to the extent that you can save, you can build generational wealth. And so I, at least for me in hearing you, that was one of my biggest takeaways from that. So let's talk about your show, the Black Expat Podcast. What? So you have this amazing show and I love it because when I listen to it, it and now having more of an opportunity to chat with you, it's your full personality. So you're not afraid to like test and learn and do new things and try different segments and and always with the the input and feedback of your listeners because I know you'll say, "Oh, you know what? You guys like this. I'm going to do more of this." You are you lean in like full. So talk to me about the show. I have listened to your show, but for anyone who has not you know, this is your floor. Go for it. Man, you know, and it's so, I always, I always get a little nervous when I introduce my show because I'm like, man, it's not, it's really not a traditional podcast. And even like how it started, because like after I wrote my, after I wrote my first book, I was trying to write my second book and um, I, I had writer's block and I was just like, you know what? And I had a podcast at the time called Six Packs with Expats where I talk about traveling and things like that. But I was like, you know what? I want to find a way to tell my story that's authentic to me. And then I don't, cause I'm not a, I'm not a natural writer. I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I can write, but I'm not the best writer in the world. And it's not something I enjoy doing for extended periods of time. But as I learned from teaching, I was like, you know what? Hey, I am, I can talk, I can speak. Um, I, and I enjoy doing it. So 
I thought I was like, all right, the best way for me to do this, to finish my second book is to, to talk about it. So I just picked up where I left off in my second book. And I was like, let me just map my journey to Taiwan because it's crazy. It's unique. It's different. And I want people to hear my perspective on how I ended up getting here and also what I'm going through. Because at the time, you know, technology wasn't what it is now. Instagram and Facebook, people weren't using these platforms the way that they're using it now. And this was 10 years ago or sorry, even eight or nine years ago. They weren't using it the same. So I wanted a way to, for my family to connect with me, for my friends to connect me, for people to kind of understand what I was actually going through. So it started with just that, it, just me talking about, this is how I got to Taiwan. Like, oh my God, somebody was tripping at work. Um, but also like, this is what it's like to be black on the island. And this is where I go to dance. This is, how, this is what it's like being in Taiwan. And then I started, you know, mentoring kids and students in America back in Chicago. I was like, you know, I need to make this more informative. Now it's okay. People are talking about, how are you doing that? Now it's the how behind becoming an expat. And it's like, you know what? My perspective's great, but other people's stories as I'm traveling and meeting more people on the island and beyond are even more fascinating than mine. Let me start doing interviews and bringing in those perspectives and sharing it with my audience because I want you guys to know that it's not just me doing it. Uh, Y'all may think I'm crazy for going skydiving, but listen to this person who moved to Spain and has been living there for 11 years and is now married and has a family there and is a Black woman from the South Side of Chicago. Like, I want you guys to hear these stories because I find them fascinating. I hope you do as well. And then it kind of grew to, okay, and I've covered the how, the when, the why, the what's going on. And now it's like, you know what? My journey is still ongoing. And I, I don't want to tie it to, you know, just talking about the how or just talking about, you know, the what or the or interviews. I want it to be authentically me. And it is a, it's a safe space for me to be open and honest and share my genuine experience of what I've gone through as an expat. And it's been a lot. It's been a lot of success. It's been a lot of failure. It's been a lot of change. It's been pivoting. And I think that people have started to relate to it because even if you're not an expat, you can listen to it and kind of understand what I'm going through. And that's what I kind of want because I realized as I was, you know, when I'm trying to hire teachers, I was selling Taiwan. Like I'm selling you an experience, trying to get you to come out. And I was like, you know what? That's while that's good, and I know that's a part of marketing, that's not what I want to do with me. I don't want to sell you on an experience. I want to talk to you about it, get your perspective, share mine, share what I'm learning from talking to others about it, and then bring that to the show. So when you walk away from it, you may be inspired to travel and live abroad, or you may be inspired to just change what you're doing in your daily life based on what you heard me go through, what, what I've done. Um, so the Black Expert Podcast, it's I'm glad that it's changed so much. I'm glad that I created a space where I'm able to shift and pivot with it. Um, and I'm also happy that my audience has kind of stuck with me through those changes because, you know, like I was doing interviews, like I did the, the Her Story series is still my most listened to series ever. I love that series because the amazing stories from Black women all over the world has just been, it was just amazing. And then the His Story series as well, which is huge. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And it's some of my best content. So I do, I love the interviews that I've had because it is, like you said, like I'm doing now, it is a conversation um, and it's a good impactful conversation. I learn from each conversation that I have, and it just pushes me to be a better person. Uh, but now it's just like, man, the Black Expert Podcast, just a combination of so many stories and so many experiences and a 10-year expat journey that has not ended yet, right? So when I speak about what I want to do in the future, like the Black Expert Podcast is me tracing that, building up to reopening another bar in Taiwan or 
or living back home in America and, and adjusting to being back here, but how my lived experiences now are impacted by what happened to me before, right? And how I can still speak about college and learning the language and things like that. So it is ongoing and I genuinely love doing it. And I hope that people that listen to it or check it out, I can hear the like my genuine voice is in that, is in my show, is in the Black Expat podcast. And everyone I bring on, their genuine voice is in it because I work really, really hard to just have like, just like this, just like what you're doing with Black to Global podcast. It's just to create that space for us to just talk because people just really are, we have like, just even being back here in America, like the importance of therapy uh, as expats, just because you're black and you go abroad doesn't mean you leave what you experience with you in America. It comes with you, but then also the experiences you have abroad are there with you. And as much as we need therapy just from being black in America, like we also need a space to talk and to connect and to voice your opinions and to be heard and to feel like you're being heard when you're abroad as well. And podcasts and what we do as podcasters and working and talking with people is a space to do that because it's not very often we get to walk into a room while being abroad and feel understood because you're not surrounded by black people. And not from people who come from where you come from. So oftentimes you feel like you are heard, but you're not understood. And that's what I kind of wanted to create a space through the Black Expat Podcast and just talking to other people to kind of have that voice be heard as well. Absolutely. I think that, I mean, we all as human beings want to be seen and heard and, and validated. And so that's why it's so important to amplify these stories. And that's why I made a concerted effort to make sure that the voices of men and women are represented in the show. And, you know, it's more women than men. (laughs) It's been my experience thus far, but it's not because, I mean, as Black expats, we're underrepresented in, in the whole expat, like, pie, if you will. But men, I find, I know they're out there. I see them on Instagram. <laughs> so, but um, being willing to to talk about the, the stories and things like that and their experiences has sometimes been a challenge. And I know you had your series. Did you, do you often encounter that it's more weighted where it's more women that are willing to share their experiences, at least publicly, than men? It's and I've been thinking about this too, and it comes up a lot. I think I just think it's hard to find. Well, for me, it's been it's not necessarily hard to find black men, but just like in America, there aren't a lot of black male teachers abroad. There aren't a lot of black male teachers, and I think mm. that's something that I've encountered. I found more black men, even in Taiwan. Most of them were engineers. They were professionals. Like I was one of the few few teachers that actually were were doing it and were were able to find jobs easily. So a lot of black men that are abroad, black American men, I want to be very specific when I say this, they weren't teaching, like they were doing different things. So I think um, it was difficult to coordinate schedules and things like that. But just overall, yes, I don't know why. I can't figure out why. I've been trying to hone in on the why behind it. But it was easier to just find more women to interview and to share their stories than it was to find men. I have access to men, a lot of men. But again, it's just like getting the conversation going. And then them, they're like, well, a lot of it was like, well, what do I share? And it's like figuring out as men, like, all right, being, like I said, being vulnerable and putting yourself out there and sharing like, yeah, my experience wasn't the best. I did struggle a lot, right? And being comfortable with saying that. And I know some people, not just men, or people struggle with that. Uh, it's like having that because I've just seen some men that I have talked to that didn't want to be on the show. They were like, well, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing. Or I don't really want to talk about it. 
It's mm-hmm. like, I didn't really have the best experience. I don't have anything positive to share. And you're a very positive person. I don't really want to you know, be on the show, but I'll be more than willing to give you some quotes that you can use and things that you can talk about on the show on my behalf. And I've ran into that a lot. And I was like, wow, like I'm, and I've been trying to figure out, you know, why, what that's, why that is, mm-hmm. uh, or why that happens to be the case. Yeah. I, I've had the same challenges. So it was, it's validating to hear from your perspective. And maybe that goes back to that whole wellness conversation where, you know, you talk about your lived experiences go with you, even when you travel to another country, it just doesn't miraculously disappear. And, you know, I've talked about wellness on the show. We've done things in the group to promote wellness um, consistently, particularly as 2020 had its share of challenges. And then um, in 2021, and I I talked about it at the end of of my season two, where I was encountering a lot of struggles in the first half of the year, and have since gone into therapy, which has been so amazing (laughs) and so transformative. And it was one of the things that I recognized that I needed to do. But it was like, oh, you know what? I'll do it once I'm there. So I don't have any like attachments. And it's like, no, do it now. (laughs) Like it's an ongoing thing. It's not going to be like, oh, I did therapy and, and I'm done. But I want people to realize that, you know, your self care, it's like what they say when you're on the airplane, put the oxygen mask on yourself first, get that oxygen, breathe in what you need to heal to restore yourself, because once you are able to operate and function at your best self, whatever that is, whatever your baseline is, things will come into place and things will become more clear. And then hopefully, you know, for men and women who have had or continue to have those struggles that, you know, we won't be able or we won't be putting this filter that, oh, well, my perspective or my story is not important or won't add value. You never know what nugget you might share with someone that inspires them to think a different way. I have been getting, especially as of late, emails from men who, like you mentioned, aren't willing to come on the show, but have said, wow, thank you for making sure that men are also represented on your platform. And so people are listening, even if we think that, you know, your story might not be interesting. We all have a story. We all are enriched by sharing stories. That's how, especially as Black people, that's how our traditions were passed down from generation to generation by stories. So I want to have a space, and you as well, that allows people to articulate whatever it is. It's valid. It's your experience. Carl, what is next for you? Because I know that you took a big leap recently. And so you are full on in as a podcaster, (laughs) which I find incredible. And so I'm like, goals, man, goals. (laughs) Talk to me a little bit about what's next for you. I mean, do you see Taiwan being your permanent home. I know you've traveled to to so many countries. So what does the future look like for you? 
Well, yes, I have. I did decide, you know, to go full time into podcasting. Um, like, like, like with anything, when you're an entrepreneur, it's difficult. People think that, you know, oh, where you got all your money from? Like, it's a lot of fundraising, a lot of support. If you're a patron, that means the world to a full time podcaster. Every dollar or cent, you don't know. Oh, well, how do you use it to eat sometimes? But uh, it's just equipment and services. Like, it is expensive to podcast sometimes when you do it consistently and when you want to update software. Like, there is a lot that goes into that, but. Um, I definitely want to continue with podcasting. My long-term goal is to always have my own with the Black Expat Podcast Network is I want to have like a radio show, like a daily show in which we talk about everything expat, Black Expat related. It can be anything. And that way people can come on, jump on and off. Like I want to have my own radio show. It'd be great to have my own radio platform to actually just build that show on my own. But I researched how much that costs and I am. I'm I'm a I'm a couple hundred thousand away from that go to, but that is that is what I'm working toward currently. Uh, you know, getting solid with podcasting, maintaining this, uh, working toward building that the expat network network, and also um you know having my own radio show eventually where it's just a way to connect expats to all the opportunities that we have all over the world. Um, I do want to be a dual expat. Like I'm I'm at the point in my life where I think I want to have basically two homes where it's like I spend the majority of my time you know in Taiwan or wherever the world I may be. And then I have the important time I'm with family. So during the summer, I'm home with family. And then during the wintertime, I'm home with family. And just, you know, remote work does make that a possibility, as does podcasting, because I can pack up my microphone and take it wherever I need to go. And it just allows me to give, you know, listeners a different perspective, because I even talked about this on my own show. It's like, well, taking advantage of being remote. A lot of people were like, man, I wish I could just work from home. And then when it happened, nobody was prepared for it. It was a whole lot of adjusting. And I was like, man, like this is, oh, kids. Oh, my God. How do I, oh, I need to eat. Oh, I can't go outside to Starbucks. I got to be in front of my computer all day. It was a lot of instantaneous adjustments where it's like, is it really that good? No, it is. You just were thrown into it. Take a step back, analyze what you're doing now, and then make it work for you. And then figure out, all right, I don't have to be at home all day. I can go to a coffee shop. There's nothing wrong with that. I can be in another state. I can take a week vacation to be in another place. So I kind of want to explore that because it's a golden dream that I've always had. But yeah, long story short, what's next? More podcasting, radio show, growing the Black Expat Podcast Network, and um, just more experiences abroad once the world opened back, back up again. And again, again, hopefully building, building, and the big goal is to reopen something in Taiwan that is for us. That's just a lot of work, a lot of saving, a lot of rebuilding from this past terrible two years that it's been for a lot of entrepreneurs all over the world. Absolutely. You know, it has been, I can't even believe it's, we're approaching two years of, of this, but I know that there will be an end to this at some point, at least we're all collectively hoping. So I want to give you an opportunity as, as we close, because as Black creatives, um, you alluded to it earlier, you know, the production, all of the stuff that goes along with being an independent podcaster um, for people that aren't in the business, it can be quite expensive. And, you know, you have been very good at being able to bootstrap, you know, like you were able to do with arts and crafts. So as people are listening to this, can you let people know where to find you and then how they can support your endeavors, which is really important? Thank you. Yeah, so I am my pop my podcast is available on you know all podcast platforms, but 
um, the fundraising I do to help with the podcast. And also a portion of that goes toward the students that I mentor who are interested in lives abroad from high school. I try to always give back as much as you get. You always have to give. But um, podcast is everywhere. My Patreon is linked in the description of all my podcasts, but it's done through Podbean. So Podbean is my streaming platform that I use to go live. So all of my live broadcasts can be heard Monday, Wednesday, Friday, (laughs) Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings. I go live and I do a 15 minute show. And that's and through the Podbean app is where you can find my Patreon, but also it's linked in the description of any podcasting platform that you use, meaning where I list out what my what that episode is about as well. But yeah, my live shows are through Podbean. My podcast is everywhere. My Instagram is the black underscore expat, and that's the same for my Facebook and my Twitter, which I do tweet now more than I Instagram. Trying to been gravitating toward that. And I don't have a TikTok yet. I feel like I need one though, but I don't know what to do. I don't know. I feel like I didn't like it when it first came out and everybody's like, oh, get on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok yet. So for now, just check out my live streams on Podbean and my podcast, wherever podcasts can be found. And then my Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Awesome. I know I have a sneaking suspicion that you will be on TikTok soon. (laughs) (laughs) I have some ideas. (laughs) I don't doubt that for a second. Carl, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for being an incredible guest on the Blacks of Global podcast. I look forward to, like I said, seeing you ticket it out on TikTok. <laughs> I don't even know if that's the thing. My daughter probably be like, Ma, that's not what they say. <laughs> But in any event, it has been a pleasure. I would love to have you back on the show or have a a live event because I think that, you know, you touched on so many things in this conversation, whether it be, you know, taking the leap, teaching abroad, being an entrepreneur abroad, leaning into learning a different language, giving back, which is wildly important. Um, There's just so many nuggets and, you know, it's hard to get and give it, you know, the full space that it deserves in this time. So I would love to have you back to continue the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This has been more than a pleasure. I I was actually super excited. I couldn't believe you emailed me. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) I'm going to be on Black the Global. Y'all were just in the New York Times. Like, this is this is, this is is big time. I think I made it. So thank you, <laughs> thank you so much. Like, I, I, told, I told my whole family about it. I was like, hey, y'all, I'm going to be on this podcast. Like, make sure y'all check it out. So I I, I know, like, I don't seem excited because I'm not going to lie. It's a little early. So I'm not, I'm not the biggest morning person. But I didn't sleep all night. So thank you so much for <laughs> I didn't either I really because I was, like, it. excited to talk to you. So I'm glad that we're both part of, like, the Mutual Admiration Society this morning. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Black Sleep Global Podcast. For more information on today's episode, be sure to visit our website at blacksitglobal.com. It's not only possible to live out your dreams unbothered and in full color, it is your birthright. Are you trying to sort out health plans, banking, VPN, and other connectivity for your move abroad? Well, have no fear. We've got you with the Move Abroad Starter Kit. Get yours today at blacksitglobal.com slash resources. That's blacksitglobal.com slash resources.